The sermon text for today is from the book of Exodus, chapter 21, verses 2 through 11. Listen as I read God's word. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he shall go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone, but if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master, and only the man shall go free. But if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and my children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. If he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Here ends the reading. Good morning, everyone. If you have been around at Elmwood for just about any length of time, uh, you know that we are not afraid of uh, looking at passages of Scripture that are challenging and difficult and uncomfortable. And... Uh, this kind of takes it to a whole nother level, though, doesn't it? <laughs> you know, it's one thing if we were to be looking at the book of Exodus and going verse by verse through everything that's in there, and we just have to talk about this because it's a part of the text. Uh, it's a whole nother thing, isn't it, when we're not looking at every single passage uh, that's in here, and this is one that we chose to have as the subject of one of our sermons. You may think that we are uh, something of a special brand of crazy. We have reached a new level of crazy, that this is something we would uh, want to bring on ourselves. Um, but we, uh, we think this is, this is good for us. Uh, you remember those commercials, the, uh, the Snickers commercials with the, you know, the want to get away, where someone's in like a really super uncomfortable, awkward situation, and they just want to get away, so they open up a Snickers bar and can kind of escape? Uh, this is one of these, like, this is a Snickers passage right here. <laughs> Okay, imagine yourself having spiritual conversation with a friend of yours who's not a follower of Jesus, and they say, hey, you know, I was actually, I was actually reading the Bible the other day. And you're like, well, that's great. And they say, yeah, you know, I was somewhere, you know, kind of towards the beginning. I think it was uh, Exodus, maybe. And I was reading this thing, and it was talking about splitting up families and selling your daughter as a servant. What in the world is that about? And that's every single Christian's uh, want-to-get-away Snickers moment. <laughs> where we have to figure out what in the world do we say or do with a passage like this, okay? Uh, the reality is that these are the kinds of passages that we find in the Bible, and as we come to this, I just want to reaffirm our, our posture as a church. Uh, we believe that everything that is written in the Bible, everything that God has given us in the Bible, is for our good, and it's for uh, human flourishing, and that everything that's written in this book is profitable for us. It may not always seem like that as we uh, look at it on first glance, but everything that's in the Bible is profitable. All of God's instruction that he gives to us, all of his commands, all of his laws are for our good, and yes, even this one. 
So we're going to be looking at this passage today um, in some detail, uh, but as we do, I'd like to invite you to join me in prayer. Ascribe to the Lord, you heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of his holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders. The Lord thunders over the mighty waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is majestic. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks into pieces the cedars of Lebanon. He makes Lebanon leap like a calf, Syrian like a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord strikes with flashes of lightning. The voice of the Lord shakes the desert. The Lord shakes the desert of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord twists the oaks and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry glory. Your voice, Lord, which fashioned the created world out of nothing, is indeed powerful. And this morning, we ask that we would experience something of the creative and formative power of your word. Or as we look at a challenging passage like this today that can make us feel uncomfortable in so many ways, we ask that you would give us clarity and wisdom that can only come from your spirit, and that you would help us to see how this passage leads us to Jesus. We want to know him, we want to be changed by him, and so we ask that you would do this in his powerful name. And all God's people said, amen. Okay, so the way we're going to tackle this this morning is I'm going to begin by just laying out uh, two very brief principles for how we should read Old Testament law passages, okay? Some interpretive principles for how we should read and understand a passage like this in the Old Testament. That's going to lay the framework And then we're going to look at this passage that you heard read, Sherry read a moment ago, as something of a case study of how we apply those things, okay? So the first principle uh, that we need to begin with is this, read the Old Testament law through the lens of the Ten Commandments, okay? Read the Old Testament law through the lens of the Ten Commandments. And the reason why we do that is because every single piece of instruction that God gives in what's called the covenant of the law is the expression of or the application of something that he has already laid out in the Ten Commandments. And so as we would come to a passage like this, we we should remember what we saw last week, uh, that God has instructed his people, you will honor and preserve the dignity of human life. That's laid out in the Ten Commandments. And so when we come to a passage like this, that on the surface seems to say something different, at least to our cultural eyes, we have to read it through the lens of the Ten Commandments saying, oh, no, 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 wait, God has already told us that we must honor and preserve the dignity of every human life. So what this passage, this passage can't be saying something different. We, we, we assume that they are in harmony with one another, okay? So we read the Old Testament law through the lens of the Ten Commandments. But the second thing, the second principle is this, get comfortable being uncomfortable. Seriously, get comfortable being uncomfortable, now, there are, there, are, there are times where when we rightly understand what the text says, when we do some uh, work maybe to understand the context or understand uh, historical matters or things like this, all of a sudden we say, oh, okay, that makes sense. It helps to clarify some of the things that make us feel uncomfortable with the passage because we realize, oh, wait, it's saying something different than what I thought it was saying. 
So sometimes those things can help just clarify and remove the discomfort. There are other times where when we rightly understand what the passage actually says, it still makes us feel uncomfortable. I remember uh, Tim Keller saying something to the effect of, a God who cannot offend us is a God that we have created in our own image. There are things in the Bible that for a variety of different reasons will make us uncomfortable. And we have to be okay sitting in that discomfort, realizing that God does not answer to us. We trust him, we love him, and so we submit ourselves even to the parts of his word that seem counterintuitive, even to the parts of his word that seem uh, offensive to us. And realize that the problem is not with God's instruction, it's not with his law, it's not with him, When our emotions run into the reality of what Scripture says, that's a problem with us, not with Scripture. And so we just approach it with that posture, uh, and we get comfortable being uncomfortable. Okay? So let's uh, spend some time looking at this passage now. If you have a Bible, uh, go ahead and turn to Exodus 21. If you've not already, we're going to start reading in verse chapter 2 of Exodus 21. The text says, if you buy a Hebrew servant, and we're just going to pause right there. We're six words in, and we've already got a little bit of uh, work to do to understand what this passage is talking about. And the reason why we need to pause here is because our minds immediately, when we hear language of buying a servant, go back to the transatlantic slave trade that, is, uh, that took place in the history of our country. And a lot of people would read this passage and would say, oh, see, here the Bible condones slavery. And in fact, over the course of history, uh, some people have used this passage to condone the kind of slavery that took place in the history of our country. But let me just assure you that that is not at all what this passage is talking about. We know that because in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 7, God gives this instruction. If someone is caught kidnapping a fellow Israelite and treating or selling them as a slave, the kidnapper must die. Okay, so kidnapping somebody, forcibly taking them against their will, and, and, and putting them to forced labor into slavery is in the Old Testament law, that is a, something that is punishable by death. Okay, so whatever's happening here in this passage is not the same thing as kidnapping people and taking them against their will and forcing them to work for you uh, for no money. Okay, that's not what's happening here. Now, so what is happening? Well, the driving force of their economy uh, was people who would sell themselves into the service of another person. So this is just part of the economic reality that they lived in. They did not live in an industrialized, globalized economy like we do, where there's corporations that have headquarters in multiple countries, that have branches in multiple cities and states, that have locations all over the continental U.S. They didn't live in that kind of environment. It was all cottage industry, very small. And so a person would own a vineyard, or they would own a farm, or they would own some other kind of industry, and if that industry grew, they would need to find people to come work for them to make the industry continue to operate. And there's also people who did not own their own business, who did not own a farm, and they needed to have a way to be provided for. And so what they would do is they would sell themselves into the service of another person, sometimes for a duration of time, so that they could have their needs provided for. 
Okay, so this is just exposing, it's showing us something of the economic reality that they lived in. So this is describing something of a contractual working arrangement between an owner and someone who would sell themselves into the service of another person. So that's what this is describing. So, verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he should go free without paying anything. If he comes alone, he is to go free alone, but if he has a wife when he comes, she is to go with him. Now, this is different than what we're used to, but so far, so good. Then we come to verse 4. If his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. This is one of those places that, that we read and we say, that sounds horrible. That sounds absolutely awful. And if you're here today and you are not a follower of Jesus or you think of someone in your life who's not a follower of Jesus, they would likely look to a passage like this in the Bible and say, see, this is why I don't believe the Bible. This is why I can't believe the Bible because it says things like this. Now, I'll just tell you, my goal this morning is not to remove all of the the discomfort and my goal is not to remove, uh, is not to, yeah, is not to just make it all make sense for you. What I do want to do, however, is, is reframe what's here to help us, I think, see this a little bit more clearly. Okay? So what Yahweh is doing here is through these instructions, God is ordering their society for the dignity of human life. He's ordering their society for the purpose of human flourishing. Now I get that on the surface it doesn't look like that to us. But think about this with me for a moment. Where were the people who were receiving these instructions? Where were the Israelite people three and a half months previous to this moment? They were in Egypt. They were enslaved in Egypt. And and the book of Exodus tells us something about their experience in chapter 1, where it says of the Egyptians, they put slave masters over them to oppress them with forced labor. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and spread, so the Egyptians came to dread the Israelites and worked them ruthlessly. They made their lives bitter with harsh labor, in brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. In all their harsh labor, the Egyptians worked them ruthlessly. So they were enslaved in Egypt, and what we have to remember about their slavery in Egypt was that it was a slavery that was ethnically based. They were enslaved because they were Hebrews, because they were the foreigners. And as soon as their population began to grow, the people in power said, whoa, whoa, we're afraid that they're gonna somehow overthrow us. And so we are going to create them into a sort of subjugated lower class of people who's going to be slaves for us. So their slavery, their service to the Egyptians was ethnically based, and it was for life. There was no chance of escape. You were born into slavery, you grew up in slavery, and you died as a slave. There was no way to buy your way out of slavery in Egypt. You were poorly, if at all, compensated beyond just your daily necessities of food and shelter, and they were worked ruthlessly, and they were treated brutally and de- in a way that was dehumanizing. So that is the experience that they've just come out of. Now, I think part of the challenge for us is, is what we have a tendency to do is to look at 21st century modern society with all of our labor laws and with all of the, the OSHA regulations and we look at our modern society and then we look back on what's here in the Bible and we say, oh, how primitive. 
I think what we ought to do rather is instead of comparing the 21st century with what we see here, we need to compare what's happening here with what they experienced in Egypt. And as we do, what we see is something that is unbelievably merciful from God. So he's ordering their society for the purpose of human flourishing. And just look at all the ways that God is doing this. So in verse 2, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he is to serve you for six years, but in the seventh year he should go free without paying anything. So in other words, God is organizing their society, and through these instructions, what he's saying is, you will not be like the Egyptians. In other words, people cannot own other people. God is saying, at the end of six years, that person can go free. You do not have the claim on another person's life. They do not belong to you. After that period of time, they get to go free. Notice also how this text, it guards against exploitation from the owner. Imagine you're somebody who is in a position where you need to find a uh, a job like this, and so you, you commit to a certain wage, and then all of a sudden you're, you're, the, the owner says, yeah, I don't think I'm going to pay you what I committed to pay you. And so what do you think is going to happen at the end of that six years? The, it's only, it could only be six years at the worst, and then the person says, hey, peace out, I'm out of here. So it guards against exploitation because there is a natural off-ramp for someone who's in this position who if they're being mistreated, they can get out. Not only this, it protects those who are vulnerable. So the people in that society, the, the, someone who is a landowner like this, who owns some sort of industry, they are not the vulnerable ones in that society. The vulnerable ones in that society are the ones who look to the landowners to provide for them. And so what this does is it guards against the owner exploiting the workers, and it protects those who are, are vulnerable in that society. And not only this, we see that this, the way that God has set this up, it incentivizes the very best treatment of the servants. So this, in verse 4, if his master gives him a wife and she bears him sons or daughters, the woman and her children shall belong to her master and only the man shall go free. But, verse 5, if the servant declares, I love my master and my wife and children and do not want to go free, then his master must take him before the judges. He shall take him to the door of the door or the doorpost and pierce his ear with an awl. Then he will be his servant for life. Okay, so just get this in your mind. A servant would be treated in such a way that the servant would say, I love my master. Let that sink in. A servant would be treated in such a way that they would say, I love my master and I will gladly serve this person for the rest of my life. And I'm even willing to go have an awl, <laughs> have a sharp thing shoved through my ear to identify me as someone who will be committed to serve this person for the rest of my life. Now, does that sound like exploitation? Does that sound like brutality? Does that sound dehumanizing? No, God is incentivizing, he's creating a system where it is incentivized for you to treat your servants in the best possible way. Because if a servant says, I love my master and I want to stay for the rest of my life, who benefits? Yeah, the master benefits, but who else benefits? The servant. So everybody benefits. The master has somebody who can 
who, who he can trust to work in his industry, and the servant has somebody who's going to provide for him for the rest of his life. So this is incentivizing the very best treatment of the servants who are in this position. Okay, so, so do you see how this is, Yahweh is ordering their society for the purpose of human flourishing. And we see that most clearly when we contrast this with what they just experienced during their time in Egypt. And so this is, this is, this is why we have to read these instructions through the lens of the Ten Commandments. Because when we do, we see, okay, I know on the surface it doesn't look this way, but God is upholding and preserving the dignity of human life through his instruction. So second part of this text, starting in verse 7. If a man sells his daughter as a servant, she is not to go free as male servants do. If she does not please the master who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. And if he selects her for his son, he must grant her the rights of a daughter. If he marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. Now, admittedly, this second part of the text here, uh, this feels a lot worse than the first, doesn't it? And, and I know for a fact that there are women sitting in this room who have been abused verbally, emotionally, spiritually, sexually. And so there's a, there's a special kind of recoil that some of us feel when we hear a passage like this. But again, what I want to emphasize is that even though they are, this is very different than what our culture is used to, what God is doing here is he is meeting them in the messiness of their human relationships and he is preserving the dignity of the women who are spoken about in this passage. Okay, so, so we, we have to understand that verses 7 through 11 are all about marriage. Okay, we have to read this through the lens of ancient marriage practices, which was marriage was arranged. You didn't fall in love and marry your high school sweetheart your parents chose your spouse for you. Marriage was arranged. In addition to that, uh, the, the parents of the son would acquire a wife by paying a bride price to the parents of the daughter who would be married to their son. So what's being described here when it says, if a man sells his daughter as a servant, it's referring to the payment of a bride price. Okay? It's referring to the payment of a bride price. This was, this was common practice in the ancient world that somebody would uh, take a second wife who had the status of a servant. And one of the main reasons for that is that the, the second wife that you have and any of her children, they're not in the family line of inheritance. So they had the status of a servant, but they were still uh, somebody that you married. Okay? And so that's why the text says, if he sells his daughter as a servant, that is, uh, pays a bride price, she is not to go free as male servants do. Because marriage is not a six-year contract that you just leave at the end of. Marriage is something that you go into for life. And that's why the, the daughter who's being sold here, the bride price paid for her, does not go free. Now again, this is vastly different than the way that we are used to thinking about relationships. This is vastly different than the cultural environment that we have grown up in. And yet this is evidence of God seeking to 
honor and preserve the dignity of the women that are spoken about in this passage. So just notice this. She's not to go free as male servants do. Verse 8, if she does not please her master, who has selected her for himself, he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has broken faith with her. So just notice that the assumption here is that the man is at fault. He has broken faith with her. And what this does for the woman is that it provides a way out of a bad relationship. He's broken faith with her. He's not pleased with her. And instead of leaving her in an environment where she would be neglected, where she would be abused, where she would be treated poorly, there is a way of escape for this woman who did nothing of her own. She didn't choose this relationship. She was married into this, and if this man doesn't like her, she has a way of escape. They can return part of the bride price and can receive. She gets to go back to her family, and she gets to find somebody else who will actually care for her and treat her well, because obviously this person who's spoken of here doesn't. And we're told also that she can't be sold to foreigners. So in other words, she can't be sold to somebody for a profit, She's not a piece of property to be sold to somebody, and she's certainly not to be sold to somebody who has a different set of ethics who would not treat her as well as what Yahweh is instructing her to be treated in this passage. In addition to this, the text goes on to say, verse 9, if he selects her for his son, he must grant her the full rights of a daughter. So she gets full rights and status as a daughter. She's not a second-class person. The text goes on to say, In verse 10, if he, that is the son, marries another woman, he must not deprive the first one of food, clothing, and marital rights. If he does not provide for her these three things, she is to go free without the payment of money. So lastly, she cannot be deprived of her marital rights. There is a way of escape for her. She gets to leave without paying anything. Now just, this is hard for us to understand because of the culture that we live in, but this was a culture Ancient culture was one in which women did not have the status to be able to even legally testify in a court case. And what this is saying is that if this woman is deprived, she has the power to leave. She has the power to get up and walk away. And she's not subservient to this man. She will not be treated poorly. She will not be treated in a, in a dehumanized, undignified way. She has the power to leave that relationship so that she is not mistreated. Now, of course, the elephant in the room with this whole thing is second wives, huh? Hmm. I'll just say very briefly, I think we need to recognize the difference because there's a difference in the Old Testament law. There's a difference between something that God commands his people to do and something that God allows and regulates and tolerates through his instruction. So divorce. This is another example. Divorce is not a part of God's design for his world, and yet there are instructions in the book of Deuteronomy for how to regulate divorce so that it is not harmful or detrimental to another person. And so this is one of those ways where what we see God doing here is God is, he's mitigating the depravity of the human heart. Remember Jesus, when Jesus is asked about divorce and they come to him and say, hey, you know, so Moses said, just hand her, hand her a certificate of divorce and move on. And Jesus says, 
The reason that command exists in the first place is because of the depravity and the hardness of your hearts. And so you see the mercy of God in that he takes something that is even a broken thing, a broken system, and he is regulating it. He's saying, we can't prevent this entirely, but I'm going to mediate, I'm going to mitigate the depravity and the brokenness that can happen because of something like this. And I think this is an instance where we see the difference between God is not commanding this to be done, but in his mercy, he is regulating this, and he's mitigating the brokenness and the messiness of human relationships. And so this, this is where we have to live with the discomfort. Because the Bible does not, in the Old Testament law, explicitly say you must not ever have more than one wife. All of the examples of having multiple wives and using sex outside of God's design lead to devastation and brokenness in the world. They all do. But God regulates it. He's mitigating the depravity of the human heart and we have to just live with the discomfort of what we see here. Now, as we wrap this part of the text up, I think uh, this passage, as as we've all observed, uh, is filled with things that make us feel uncomfortable. This is a challenging piece of scripture. It's not easy. It makes us feel uncomfortable. And yet, at the very same time, what we cannot miss is that the gospel is all over this passage. What this passage demonstrates for us is God meeting his people where they are. God does not say to his people, okay, what you need to do is you need to clean, clean this thing up a little bit. What you need to do is you need to, you need to fix all this stuff that's broken within your relationships, broken within your society, all these customs, all these practices you have that are, that are destructive, that are broken. You need to just clean all that stuff up first. You need to fix this, you need to fix that, and then we'll talk about this covenant partnership thing. God does not do that. He meets his people in the midst of their economic system. He meets them in the midst of the customs that they have. He meets them in the midst of the brokenness and the messiness of their human relationships. And what you see is that God loves them enough to meet them there, and God also loves them enough not to let them stay the same. Because what God is doing is he's taking them out of one toxic, unhealthy environment, slaved enslaved in Egypt, and brings them out and says, you will not be like that. And through his instruction, he's remaking them into a society that is centered around worship of Yahweh and human flourishing. And this is what he's doing. He's organizing their society for human flourishing. He meets them where they are, and he loves them enough not to let them stay the same. Now, this is is like a little seed that's planted here in the book of Exodus, and, and the seeds of these instruction that God gives here, they sprout and they grow and they come to fruition in the person and work of Jesus. What we see in the New Testament is the clearest demonstration of what you could call divine accommodation that exists. God himself took on human flesh and came to us He did not say, okay, I'm going to take three steps this way, and you're going to take the next two steps. We're going to meet in the middle. God came to us. 
He met us in the midst of our brokenness, in the midst of our vulnerability, which is not just social or economic, relational vulnerability, but the, the vulnerability we carry with us is, the, is the, the brokenness that exists inside of our heart. We are spiritually dead apart from the saving work of God. And what we've seen here in this passage in the law is that God is, what should jump off the page at us is how long-suffering and how patient and how unreasonably merciful God is with his people. He accommodates us, and he will not let us stay the same. And likewise, Jesus meets us in the midst of our vulnerability. He meets us in the midst of our brokenness and does not make us meet him halfway, but he does everything. We contribute nothing. We contribute absolutely nothing. And that is the good news. That is the good news of the gospel that God accommodates us. God comes to us. And it's got nothing to do with our performance. It's got nothing to do with what we can contribute. God meets us in the midst of all the messiness, all the brokenness of our lives. And he, he has the, the grace and the love enough to meet us where we are. And at the same time, he loves us enough not to let us stay the same. As we come to the communion table today, the communion table reminds us of the lengths that God went to in order to be with his humanity. He took on human flesh and accompanied us, lived human life as we live it here, except he did so without sin. He perfectly embodied everything that the Old Testament pointed forward to. He treated every single person that he encountered with the dignity and the worth and the value that they deserve as an image bearer of God. And he did so, he suffered and died on our behalf so that we could be made right in relationship with God. And this is what we get to celebrate as we come to the communion table. We, we have the broken body and the shed blood of Jesus. And it demonstrates the lengths to which he was willing to go in order to rescue us from the depravity that exists inside of our, our human hearts. And it reminds us of the gospel. It's a tangible reminder of God's faithfulness and his love that's given to us. And so we get to celebrate that as we come to the communion table. I'd like to invite you to take just a moment of silent reflection and confession. <laughs>